Hello, I'm Kirk Kernan. Hi, I'm Scott Yarbrough. And welcome to our seventh episode of the Great American Novel Podcast. And Scott, I'm going to throw it to you because in this episode, we're taking on a, a novel that I'm absolutely unfamiliar with. Yes, Kurt Kernut, editor of the Scott Fistrailed Review, is not familiar with The Great Gatsby, which he's probably taught 4,000 times and read about that many times as well. So as we drop the irony for a minute, yes, we're talking about Scott Fitzgerald's 1925 novel, The Great Gatsby. Gatsby? What Gatsby? The man who gives his name to this book. Gatsby, who represented, who only Gatsby was exempt from my reaction. Gatsby. All right, now look. All right, now look. Now wait All right, now wait Now hold on. If I hear any more, I want it quiet. If I hear one more sound, I'm going to close this book and forget about the whole thing. Which tells the story of a mysterious man who's a neighbor of our narrator, Nick Carraway, who seems to yearn for green light at the end of the dock, a man who has recreated himself to win the Lady Fair, but we're not sure how much the Lady Fair wishes to truly be won by him. And it is a a study of what happens when we lose focus of the important parts of the American dream and focus on wealth and consumerism. It's about holding on to lost dreams into our next age. It's about heartbreak and our inability to let go of the past and move on. And it is to many people, including myself, when we talk about great American novel, this might be the first book that comes into mind. I think you're absolutely right. And I was only joking because in Fitzgerald's studies, everybody wants to write about Gatsby, but he did write 180 short stories and and four other novels throughout a short 20-year career. (laughs) But there's no denying the fact that The Great Gatsby has made a huge impact on American culture. And I think one way to measure that is to recognize that whenever there is a political or social issue and people reach for literary anecdotes or good quotes, somehow we always manage to get Gatsby to show up. And I was struck a few weeks ago when the New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd went after Barack Obama for having his (laughs) 60th birthday party during the middle of a Delta variant resurgence, that she began her whole takedown of him with a long comparison of Obama to Jay Gatsby, (laughs) which I'm not sure sure I've ever really thought about before. I can't say that's the first comparison that pops into mind as she beats on against the current uh, born back ceaselessly into the past. It's certainly a novel that no one would gainsay us choosing it for this podcast, but I think it's interesting how, although here we are coming up on a hundred years after its publication, certain parts of it seem as fresh as they ever were. And it seems to echo and resonate in every generation since it's first published. So why don't we we start off maybe talking, Kirk, about Scott Fitzgerald's background. And anyone who reads this novel and reads stories like The Rich Boy and Mayday knows how Fitzgerald is obsessed with wealth. And since you're too proud to do it, I'll here make a shameless plug for your other podcast, Master of the 40, about Scott Fitzgerald short stories that you and Robert Trogdon are 
drawing at random from his 180 short stories. But why is Scott Fitzgerald so obsessed with wealth? We see it permeate these works. Well, one of the things that I would say, and I think this is part of the key to his appeal, is that I think Fitzgerald recognized something that most literary writers are kind of, certainly proletarian writers, are not willing to acknowledge. And that is the fact that um, many of us enjoy money. Mm. There is a desire to affluence and affluence is the lingua franca of consumerism, enjoying pleasures. And I think Fitzgerald really is rare in his coveting of money. It worked against him for a long time, but I've always thought that he is almost unapologetic in saying to us as readers, especially middle-class readers, Hmm. get over that sort of biblical restraint and I should be a good person. We all like to go and blow a wad of money every once in a while. Hmm. So I think that's part of his appeal. Uh, Biographically, it comes from the fact that uh, he was born into a solidly middle class but fading middle class family in St. Paul, Minnesota. His father was not a successful businessman at all. And in fact, when Fitzgerald was a young child, his father was fired from Procter & Gamble. That was after a furniture factory he owned in St. Paul uh, went bust. And the family was living in Buffalo at the time. And I think the great humiliation of seeing his father at the age of 57 lose employment and sort of be defeated by the economic system, bore a deep impression on him. His mother's family was more consistently wealthy, but they made their money out of solid working class stock where his uh, grandfather had built up a wholesale grocery business. So there's a whole tension in Fitzgerald between old money and new money, old blood, aristocratic and and new wealth. And that certainly plays through in the novel. Right. Again, a lot of that is easy to dismiss, but I think we're naive if we don't recognize that uh, money has a great appeal. Yeah. And his mother has such aspirations for him. They send him to a, mm-hmm. a very exclusive prep school that the family cannot really afford. And he's the middle-class guy there whose family's had to move back in with the grandparents because they can't afford their own house. And he's going to school with all these super rich kids who have multiple houses and, you know, a lake house, a beach house, a mountain house and their primary house. Um, and he's not even got his own house. Um, he he's right. later sent to Princeton and the whole thing just happens all over again. And so it seems like over and over again from between seeing his father fail, his mother's need for him to become more important, more affluent and constantly having his nose rubbed into the fact that he's not to the manner born and that he's not going to be able to escape his lower to middle-class origins seems to also bubble up in these stories. And there's a huge adolescent snub that is really key to the plot that we often refer to as the pursuit of the golden girl. Almost all of the stories that we think of as of, of Fitzgerald's as being canonical or sort of the stereotypical Fitzgerald stories involves an aspiring but a young man without money pursuing a young woman whose affection for him or acceptance of him stamps him as being worthy of admission 
into the world of the upper class. And that is an event that occurred in 1916 when he was 19 years old, basically. And he had been courting a young woman from, uh, from Illinois named Ginevra King. And uh, one day while visiting her family, he either overheard or was told this directly from either an uncle or, a, or her father that poor boys shouldn't marry rich girls. Mm. And that was really the snub that launched a career. Fitzgerald always suffered from an acute sense of class consciousness. And on the one hand, while he desired access to that world of finery and, and leisure, he was also very much the outsider looking in. And that created what critics often call his dual perspective being on the inside and the outside, which is a line that the narrator Nick Carraway uses in this novel. Yes. So it's a very important feeling that really propels this entire novel. And in fact, I think you can almost go ahead and say a lot of people want to look at um, Daisy Faye Buchanan because she is from Louisville as a version of Fitzgerald's wife, Zelda Sayer from my town of Montgomery, Alabama. But in reality, Zelda Sayer's family was not affluent. They were state employees, essentially. And uh, it was Ginevra King who is really the model for Daisy Buchanan. I guess World War I breaks out. That's when he goes to Montgomery. That's when he meets Zelda. And he's working in the camp on a novel. And he eventually sends off the, the draft of it to Scribner and Sons. And it ends up with the famous editor who's not famous at this point and this is one of the reasons he'll become famous maxwell perkins who does what no editor today at a major publishing house would ever do kirk he actually edits it critiques it sends it back with advice and of course Fitzgerald does what none of our students do when their professors take care to do these things he takes the advice seriously works on his work over and over again and sends that that book back to scribner and sons and it gets published Tell, what what goes on in his career at this point? It's it's really probably accounts for a lot of the popularity that the Fitzgeralds have in the popular culture because it's a it's this very romantic notion of authorship. Basically, when World War One ended, Fitzgerald had no prospects, and he for a very brief time went into advertising. Was trying to convince Zelda Sayer to marry him. Uh, she was not not because she was not a great person she declined because he had such few prospects and uh, he got to the point in the summer of 1919 where they broke up he was 22 years old and it's a hail mary he decides to quit new york city go home live with his parents and write a novel and everything depends on this novel being accepted and published. And the charming thing about it is if you read his letters to Maxwell Perkins, he says, please, guys, please publish this book because there's a there's a girl that depends on this. <laughs> and of course, the minute he gets the acceptance letter, he hops a train to Montgomery. And that's when the whirlwind marriage plans for Scott and Zelda begin. So that's part of the, the mythology of Scott and Zelda, and it's been told and retold a bazillion times in TV shows and novels, but it has a very appealing idea that being a writer can make you wealthy and make you famous, and uh, it's like being the rock star of the day. That's really what Fitzgerald was. 
Right, right. They didn't have television stars. Movie stars were still not big deals at this point. They were starting to become that. But the Fitzgeralds become right. the, you know, glamorous couple, whoever, whoever this year, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie is. I know that's now a very dated reference <laughs> uh, as, a, as a quick pause, Kirk. Am I wrong that he was working on that first draft and the while in the in camp? Yeah, he started writing that uh, shortly after he entered the military. Now he entered the he entered the military specifically because he was flunking out of Princeton. Right. And in 1917, when the United States entered the Great War, the deal was Princeton students could go into the service, and their record would essentially be suspended. And then they would be brought back after right. the, you know, kind of the slate wiped clean and allow them to start over. And to go in as officers without really having the training for it. Exactly. To be officers. And Fitzgerald never really went back to Princeton. I mean, he didn't go back to Princeton as a student. Um, one of the things that's also very important to the creation of the Great Gatsby is the idea of the artistic flowering right. because Fitzgerald's first two novels, This Side of Paradise, which was published in 1920, the most popular novel when he was alive, uh, and then The Beautiful and Damned, which is getting ready to celebrate its centennial next year, 1922, are both mm. very flawed books. Now, F. Scott Fitzgerald is all of 23 and 25 when these books come out. He's still a very young man. Uh, he is writing a ton of short stories for the Saturday Evening Post that are making him great money. But he's very aware, too, that he's writing in short story f formula. So by the time he gets to uh, late 1923, early 1924, he's still not anywhere near 30 which I think is important to keep in mind. But he understands that he is stuck in mm. a kind of an unhealthy place between being a popular writer and being a literary artist. And he craves the literary praise right. because he knows he's a good writer. He, I mean, he knows he is um, probably the best stylist of his generation. And so the second Hail Mary of his career comes in 1924 when he decides he's going to write a very different kind of book and he is going to tap into his love of romantic literature and and just really spin gold out of out of words and part of the way that they end up having to do this is he's got to get away from the wild and crazy lifestyle that Scott and Zelda are living in 1923 in Great Neck, New York, and they go abroad to Paris. So there's another whole romantic myth about the writing of The Great Gatsby that involves a young, successful writer really confronting his talent yeah. and producing something that he he believes is going to be not only his personal masterpiece, but the greatest contribution of his generation to American literature. And it's not something that he arrives at out of nowhere. There are these early stories that are often referred to as a Gatsby cluster of stories where he kind of starts really changing his style, working on his craft. Those early novels seem very much in flow with what other writers are doing at this time. But with these stories, and I'm thinking primarily of winter dreams as the, the, the one that for me is really hitting, you know, on a, yeah. firing on all cylinders to to wield my much polished cliche uh 
the the level of craftsmanship, the beauty and poetry and lyrical quality of the narration, the the bittersweet pathos of the tale. I think he's he's trying out a lot of what he's going to work on in Great Gatsby there. Well, he even referred to that as a first draft of Gatsby. Mm. And I think one of the ways of understanding what we mean by Fitzgerald's leap and craft is that in a lot of these early stories, including Winter Dreams, uh, but also in his novels, he was very apt to use a device that was associated with 19th century writing that modernist peers absolutely loathed, which was the omniscient, intrusive narrator, right. very typical of popular short stories. So he he cut that back in Gatsby and instead tells the tale in the in, from the first person perspective of Nick Carraway. And what that does is it, it brings a lot of ambiguity to the text. Uh, he essentially does what Henry James yes. and many other realist writers do. Uh, in using a in using a uh, first person narrator, we have a character and we have a narrator. They are the same person, but the narration occurs at some point after the story. And to whatever degree we trust the narration, this often called unreliable narrator, that's kind of the cliche term. We as readers have to evaluate to what degree then this character, this participant narrator, shades our perspective of events. And it becomes a challenge for us as readers to kind of find a sense of objectivity from which we can judge what goes on. Because the narrator is certainly operating from a subjective point of view. Right. And and a great example of that is Huckleberry Finn, who doesn't really challenge anything going on in his culture until the very end of the novel Yet, of course, it's very clear Twain is constantly challenging the slave-owning culture of the Mississippi River in you know, the 1840s. There's one more biographical event that I think we need to cover that occurs during the writing of The Great Gatsby in the summer of 1924, because it plays into, I think, the notion of romantic betrayal that is at the heart of the book. Mm. Uh, this is a novel in which the... Uh, if you want to call it the chivalric knight, the Jay Gatsby figure who is supposedly, you know, doing all these deeds in the service of the name of his uh, betrothed, uh, you know, the damsel, Daisy Faye Buchanan, but is ultimately betrayed by her. And um, as Fitzgerald was writing the book, he he really, he and Zelda never really had a, a calm marriage. It was always a you know, in, in a state of upheaval. Um, but they were living on the Riviera and Zelda um, was largely bored spending her days alone while Fitzgerald was locked in a room writing away. And she became involved in uh, some kind of extramarital liaison. We don't know if it was platonic or if it was consummated, but it was with a French aviator named Edward Josanne. And you will often see this referred to as the uh, Gatsby affair or uh, <laughs> some kind of term like that. But it, it was really marked a turning point in their marriage where Fitzgerald sort of gave up the idea that he and Zelda were perfectly compatible sort of halves of each other and uh, began exploring more the rivalries in relationships. And the, the uh, from then on, his writing in many ways becomes a little more bitter. So when you use the word bittersweet, I think that's mm. a central appeal of The Great Gatsby is it's just such a beautiful book 
that evokes in us emotions of melancholy and sadness of loss. Right. I, you know, I think that's a central tenet of the great works of American modernism, leaving aside the poetry for a minute, although it's throughout Frost and Elliot. If you look at Hemingway's great trilogy of his most important novels, they're all centered around bittersweetness. If you look at Faulkner's most, most compelling works, uh, now some of those move from bittersweet into tragedy, but there are elements of this bittersweetness throughout his work. You see it over and over again in all these writers, this notion that things seem to be going well, but here's the bad side, or there's a loveliness here, but there's a darkness here. And I think it's that notion that you don't just simplify things into a straight tragedy or a straight comedy that is one of the less definable, more subtle innovations of the modernists, of the, of the best modernist writers, you know, operating from between 20 and 30 there. And this, this theme of loss, loss of idealism, it's also a national theme. It's very much a, a running theme of American literature. It dates back to the, to the Puritans who came to this new world to settle, to create a, a heavenly paradise on earth and almost this errand into the wilderness. And almost from the beginning, you know, a decade into their project, you have the rise of these Jeremiads where these religious leaders uh, are, are bemoaning the fact that when they come to the new world, everything, every project goes a kilter and people become corrupted by consumerism, by wealth, uh, and they take their eyes off the prize of the idealism. So I think part of the appeal for Gatsby, and it's a bit of a dangerous one because there's a certain term that I absolutely loathe that we agreed we definitely need to revise here. But the, the notion is that um, in America, we have fundamentally gotten off track somehow. And if we could only get back to where we once belonged, uh, to quote the to quote the great <laughs> philosopher Paul McCartney, um, we we could <laughs> rediscover our purpose in life and our idealism, and of course we know that's sort of a nostalgic appeal, but it it right. is a nostalgia. There's a reason that nostalgia appeals, and it's precisely because of that. It makes us yearn for a past that really never was, and of course that's Gatsby's dilemma. Is he longs for to recreate right. that romance in 1917 with him and Daisy that was supposed to be so beautiful, uh, but in, in reality probably was deceiving for both of them. So my question for you, Scott, is I'm going to throw this term out and I'd like you to tell me why it's become such a cliche and what we, what we might possibly use in its place. But I will tell you as the editor of the F. Scott Fitzgerald Review, one of the first things that we the quickest way to, I hate to say this, quickest way to get a rejection is to have the phrase, the American dream in the title. <laughs> so what do we use in its place? Well, the first thing I, I build my survey of American lit for presumably college sophomores, although I know more than my share of seniors in there who have waited to take their lit credit. I build it around this notion because we have a, from colonization to the present approach. We don't break up the class until you get into upper division American literature. So I talk about its nascent origins in John Smith saying, doesn't really matter who you were, come here and you can kind of do what you want. And Ben Franklin, uh, and for that matter, the Puritans not seeing the king or nobility of 
England and Europe as being more important to them because they're the ones who are important to God, not all these other people who have not found, who have not been, you know, the elect and chosen people who are going to heaven. And then we see how Franklin codifies it in his autobiography. And of course, that autobiography is directly referenced in the latter pages of The Great Gatsby when uh, Nick is speaking to Gatsby's father, who shows him the book where Gatsby's written down little ideas to improve himself in the back and includes study electricity, et cetera. And bathing. And bathing, yeah. And historians will always debate how much uh, Franklin did or did not really do everything he says. To me, that's less interesting than what he's trying to get across in the book. So I'm approaching it from a literary standpoint. We take it from that to saying, well, what does this mean to Frederick Douglass? Yeah. And we talk about how Frederick Douglass, against all odds, teaches himself how to read and write by befriending the little boys in the neighborhood he's not segregated from yet and getting them to help him learn. And how that ability to learn and understand the world and to read utterly changes him forever when he starts realizing that this way of life of being a slave in Baltimore is not something intended by the creator. It's not something that everyone in the world believes is true. It's not something that is supposed to be the path for every person of color in the new world, but rather something that's been imposed on him. And it's, and he decides to change himself, but when he eventually escapes from slavery, despite all the laws that would allow bounty hunters from the South to come take him back into slavery, he doesn't hide and rest on his laurels. Instead, he starts working to eradicate this disease from the United States. And so I say there's this kind of notion of what the American dream is, if we look at Franklin and Douglas, that no matter who your people are, where you come from, if you work for it, you can improve yourself and therefore improve your place in life. And the goal is you keep improving the world upon, around you, right? which is something Franklin and Douglas have in common. But something happens after the Civil War. And you could argue that that American dream never really exists in the South where people do care who your people are and where you come from. And, you know, in that great book, The Mind of the South by Cash, talks about how people willingly believe their own myths of creation and think they're rugged individuals while they're following blindly after, uh, you know, the society's leaders that are telling them, know your place, do what you're told, don't rock the boat. And so we get to the 20th century, of course, and all those things start falling apart in that that green light at the end of the dock is perhaps not only daisy, it's also this beacon of what the American dream could be, whether we're taking that from Franklin or Jefferson or Frederick Douglass or whomever, and how we've fallen so short. And so we, we talk about what happens when people like the Buchanans are judging you by your status and your wealth and family position and what happens when you internalize this notion of the hegemony instead of repudiate it, which is always the danger? And what happens with Gatsby that he interweaves this love for Daisy with this need to be successful and important and respected? Um, and you, you were saying earlier how we all want money. We want to have money. But it's also, at least in the fiction, it's always about status and importance and being respected as well. So earlier we talked about Absalom, Absalom, which is another book that comes out a decade after this book or 11 years later, which is still dealing with this issue, but again, shows how someone has the wrong take on it. Now, what term would I use in its place? I would probably say that the 
I don't know if I can reduce it to a term, but the idea that we're not going to be shackled by our societal position, our ability to move socially, uh, vertically, as well as laterally. In academia, there's a couple terms that are kind of become popular substitutes and they're they're about as cliched as the American dream at this point, but we tend to talk about self-making, the plasticity of the self, the ability to be whoever you want to be, but also we talk about agency and the ability to act out and create oneself, whoever we want to be. That's a very American theme, and it can see it for good and bad. We Thomas Sutpen is a version of Jay Gatsby. It's kind of the negative version. We see the mon- monomaniacal right. version in Sutpen. In Gatsby, it's presented to us as the romantic idealist. It's almost like a Stephen Foster kind of song. You know, Gatsby is our beautiful dreamer. <laughs> and I think female readers sometimes come back and kind of quash that idea because the the idea of success is 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 the reward for success as a woman and you know Gatsby can essentially be dismissed if you want to be dismissive as a glorified stalker or creeper I mean there's there's not too many not too many literary heroes that track their women down and build mansions across from him and <laughs> stare at their uh, green lights all night. So could be a little creepy, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, there's no doubt that he is the victim. As much as he's a victim of how Tom Buchanan sees the world, he's equally a victim of his inability to see things as they really are. He never, whether he's ever in love with the real Daisy or not, is is up for debate. Certainly at the time of the novel setting, he is in love with, with his illusion of her. And he makes her a in his mind, a better person, a person who loves him more deeply, a Hollywood princess version of who she really is. And it's not entirely Daisy's fault that she is not who Gatsby wants her to be. It doesn't really excuse a couple of the things she does in the book, but at the same time, we certainly can never blame her for not wanting to end up with Gatsby because he never really knows the real her. He never if when you first fall in love with someone, it's infatuation and illusory. The second wave of development and of maturity of that love is that you fall in love with the real person behind your illusion of them. And Gatsby's never been given that chance or exercised that chance to see who she really is. Most of us, when we get the Dear John letter, are probably done at that point. He clearly just got focused and got a got a plan together at that point. I tend to feel a lot of empathy and compassion for Daisy, even though for decades, you would often read criticism where she is described as the bitch goddess, which, um, you know, talk about some misogynist language there, but, uh, but Daisy is her own version of that, of that trapped uh, in the class system because women of wealth had no social function. I mean, there's a great opening scene where Nick Carraway walks into the Buchanan mansion and these two women daisy and jordan baker are on the couch as and they're sort of glorified possessions themselves they're part of the decor and there's not really anything for women to do in the upper class world except be worship they get to play it's a perpetual adolescence but you're right they have to just be kind of the modern term is trophy wife and of course there's also this decision that's that Daisy made in her past. She already knows that 
Tom's having an affair. And so she has a choice at some point she's made. Do I want to go the way that perpetuates my wealth and status in society? Or do I want to take a chance at some of that crumbling apart by challenging Tom to his face and in the courts and all those things? And she has decided that the wealth and status and security of staying in her current position is more important to her than than Tom having to act the way he should. She loses everything if she leaves him. And he is an abusive husband. I mean, he's broken right. her finger and he's, uh, he slaps his mistress around. Yep. He's a violent bully. I think one yep. of the novel's appeals that maybe we need to resist a little bit, and I'm certainly not arguing for a pro- Tom Buchanan position, but I do think the novel, it it sort of appeals to our desire to believe that people born with silver spoons in their mouths are um, jerks, are bullies. Uh, You know, the the deck is stacked against the uh, old money in the book in a lot of ways, in part because they have all the power. I find that's one thing that students, contemporary students, really struggle to appreciate because they don't give a crap about in, inherited wealth. To them, the really the interesting icons in society are the new money figures, are the Gatsby figures like Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or any of these kinds of uh, even iconic rappers who r- rise up from the streets and, and are flaunting all of this uh, wealth and luxury and possessions um, by virtue of of self-making. So one of the ways I think the book has maybe changed in the past century is it demonstrates that, uh, you know, our sense of who the rich are is very different than it was 100 years ago. It's hard to believe that new money would be illegitimate wealth. But, you know, in one of other Fitzgerald's other stories, um, he talks about the fact that un- unlike Europe, you can date your family back basically two generations in America. Right. Well, and, and it is interesting to see. I mean, we've, if, you, if you examine American politics, it's a very short list of people who don't have significant money who earn high status in American politics. And you have other people who on the, on the back of uh, family fortunes are able to have very significant roles in American politics. But it is weird when you look at those families, realize a lot of them haven't been that successful for that long. So even if we go back to the politics of the World War II era, you have uh, FDR, who is a a scion of a longtime wealthy, important family, who's had a relative who's already been president just, you know, a generation earlier. And then you have um, the Kennedy's uh, father, who has become a incredibly successful businessman, uses that to have a successful political career, loses a chance at his own presidential run, but but sees it happen for his son. And, you know, so Kennedy is a second generation man of wealth whose family is suddenly, you know, he's he's King Arthur and Camelot. And that certainly that picture is is not possible in 19th century America. And it's certainly not possible in early 20th century Britain or, or France or Italy. It's, it, it's truly something a little distinctive. Uh, hey, another cliche term you often hear is American exceptionalism. That may be the wrong term here, but it's so, something distinctive about where the United States is by the 20s yeah. as in 30s and 40s in the political case I gave 
and what you see in other places. But I think it's important to recognize that even though we in America tend to criticize that notion of exceptionalism as being sort of dangerously delusive, it does have its appeal over there. Uh, this summer, the Fitzgerald Society was running a series of online webinars because we couldn't get together in person. And one of the programs we did was called the Global Gatsby and asking why is Great Gatsby taught in South Africa? Why is it taught in London? Why is it taught in Japan? And to a T, right. folks in those other countries came back and said, it represents what America represents to us, which is opportunity. Mm. And I was really kind of struck by that, that, um, wow, people still believe that myth. You could argue we can deconstruct it and call it a myth partly because we're not dependent upon it. Whereas if you are someone, it's, I guess it's all about the things you have in your box of comparison. So we look at our poor and we say, this is awful. We've got to do what we can to help them. Look at this government assisted housing. But then you meet someone from some of the countries you've mentioned, or we could say Saudi Arabia or Nigeria or um, uh, Mexico or Venezuela and they look at our poor who are in government-assisted housing and have air conditioning and have cable television and internet. And as much as we know all the problems that are coming about due to poverty, we know all the problems of generational poverty, poor education, how it perpetuate all this. From the perspective of these other places, they're not particularly poor. Uh, and they still see it as an opportunity. So maybe it just shows how kind of fat on the land, to refer to another American modernist, we are compared to a lot of these other places. So returning to this novel, though they've lost track of it by this point, and it is all about this need to, to demonstrate your power through what you can own and purchase, right? This kind of rampant consumerism, the dark side of this American dream notion. Yeah, you often see Gatsby uh, cited alongside an uh, economics philosopher named Thorstein Veblen, who came out in 1899 with the phrase conspicuous consumption Yes, in a book called Theory of the Leisure Class. And the idea is basically that in America, somehow around the turn of the century, we went from producers to consumers. And the idea that our purpose in life is no longer that Protestant work ethic, but that we, that we generate wealth in order to display it in order to waste it. And I think this is one of the great novels that really demonstrates yes. the pleasures of wastage in that way. It's very different. It's a very generational difference between Fitzgerald and Edith Wharton. If you remember back to when we did Age of Innocence, there was almost a humility among the wealth wealthy there, even though they're displaying all of their... Uh, money and possessions. Mm. At the same time, there was really, uh, I think, a sort of sense in that group of people, very, probably very deluded sense, that there, with wealth came an obligation to uphold standards and to, to exude taste. But here we get a novel that is really about the joys of you get money and man, go buy a pink suit. Well, exactly. And it's that, it's that notion of the nouveau riche that goes back to that that period that Wharton's writing about from the 1870s that and the cliche is new money can't help but show. And, and with, and this is one of the things that the Tom Buchanan's of the novel pick up on that the Nick Carraway's don't necessarily is that a lot of Gatsby's ostentatiousness shows that he's in over his head and that he's foreign to that world. 
not only because of where he's required to buy his McMansion, as I often refer to it, because it, you know it's a new one that's just popped up here in the wrong part of of Long Island, but also because the pink suit and he buys an airplane and he has all these the various cars and uh, the, not to mention the shirts. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the shirts because there are certain scenes in the novel that are just absolutely um, classic in their in their unabashed love of consumer goods and the the moment where Gatsby is essentially consummating this relationship with Daisy emotionally winning her back his his way of doing it is to take her up to his bedroom and not not to do it sexually at this moment but to whip open his his literal drawers <laughs> his closet and start throwing around all these great shirts that he that he's had custom made. So, so Kirk, if you're the right size, wouldn't you love to be, and you, and you missed him as a central point that he's had custom made anywhere as once. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And he gets rid of them. Wouldn't you love to be at the thrift store the day the Gatsby shirt delivery comes in, if you're the right size for him? That points out the absolute theme of wastage in here. Yes. Is that you you have enough money that you can waste it. And the one of the other subtler moments, but one that a lot of critics really love, is uh, when Nick Carraway describes preparations for Gatsby's party. There's a description of a brand new uh, juicer in the kitchen, an electronic juicer. So you can pull halves of oranges so much more quickly. And Nick is kind of just fascinated by this, these boxes of, of pulped orange halves that are, that are able to be done by machine. And there are car wrecks in the novel that demonstrate the culture of waste that sort of celebrate uh, just the very fact that this is novel belongs to a, an era that celebrated mm. drinking to excess. I mean, before the 1920s, all of these novels were so puritanical about alcohol. Yes. But all of a sudden you get to uh, 1920 and in a large part because of the Volstead Act, yep. taking alcohol out of the hands of people. There is this desire to show uh, the fun of getting, pardon my French, but getting shit faced, and well, it's a, it's you know it's the creation of bench drinking culture, right? Exactly. You've you've always had, you've had drunks since all the way back, and you've had pubs and taverns where people go for a few drinks before calling it a night. But what you haven't had is an entire generation of young people going out and partying and getting wasted together, and you've especially never seen women of quote unquote. Um, good status in the community doing this with the men. And it's, it's completely this combination of world war one is over. Uh, America has all this incredible new affluence. And right. at the same time, the, the Bolstead act and prohibition has made it the forbidden fruit. And what had been something you did with your neighbor, the cop and your uncle, the judge the day before is now presumably a crime though in many communities, of course, it's, it's kind of like getting a speeding ticket. Yeah. In other places, of course, it creates a, a whole generation of, of organized crime as, as the bootlegging. It creates the opportunity for the Arnold Rothsteins and the Al Capones, and that's an important yep. gangster part of it. Before we go to yeah. that, though, I want to address one other element of the sort of life of luxury consumer appeal 
uh, and we've touched on it just a little bit with the drinking, but I think to me, part of the great appeal of The Great Gatsby is it no novel celebrates better the fun of going to a party. Now, yeah. I am a lover of parties. I am a connoisseur of parties. I love to go to parties. People don't have them as much as at our age anymore because it requires no. cleaning the house. But uh, um, <laughs> nobody wrote parties better than Fitzgerald. And so in chapter three, we get this just absolutely beautiful but hallucinatory trip to our first Gatsby party. And I think Fitzgerald so brilliantly captures what is fun about um, now I'm not talking the backyard barbecue where everybody puts on their kid rock t-shirt and their uncle Sam, <laughs> you know, thong or whatever I'm talking where you dressed up and you went to parties that were social events. Right. And just the beauty and, and the sense of excitement that almost anything might happen where, whether it's a sexual conquest or whether it's an, yes. uh, an unexpected moment of, of melancholy one of the most beautiful moments in that uh, party scene is toward the end where everybody's coming down, sobering up. There is a cabaret singer who gets up and starts singing. And she's so moved by the sound of her own voice, she starts crying. And Fitzgerald describes her mascara as running like the notes on the sheet music. And it just really epitomizes the joy of that sense of a party being an opportunity right. to indulge and to be a little reckless and to find some excitement and um, elevation in life, not in a sense of religious duty, but in yeah. consuming. I think if you take a poll of any number of educated people and you ask them, What's the best, let's call it two-year period of, of your life? A huge number of them are going to refer to when they're in college. Um, you know, leaving aside when they get married or when they have kids, whatever. A whole huge number are going to talk about their college time. And they're not talking about going to class. They're talking about going to parties with their friends right. and all those social opportunities as well. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that Chapter 3 party is in direct counterpoint to a more intimate, disturbing party in Chapter 2 where Nick feels yeah. kind of outside but attracted by his very repulsion the whole time and it's described in a kind of nice way in the text um you know simultaneously with without and within and every time he tries to leave he's drawn back by some strident argument you know about invisible ropes and all that um and we see that that back and forth between this one party which is sheer joy and make the most of life you know eat drink and be merry uh, tomorrow we die kind of attitude versus this other kind, which there's something darker going on in the Buchanan party. It's a lot more desperate. It's a, it's a lot of the, for lack of a better term, and this is kind of hard on the characters. Uh, it's the wannabes that don't have the idealism or the taste necessarily. We're talking about Tom Buchanan's mistress, right. Rachel Wilson. Very important thing in that chapter is when she changes clothes three times. Yeah. And each time her personality changes. <laughs> so every time she steps up in a new outfit, she becomes a little haughtier. She's coveting that sort of ability. Absolutely. And then she crosses a line and tries to enter Tom's world by saying Daisy's name over again. And he breaks her nose. And Tom... When he breaks her nose, he doesn't do it particularly with heat or rancor. 
he just hit it. It's described as a short death yeah. movement and he breaks her nose with his open hand. He just does it to put her in his place. Like he would in a horse or dog that's acting up. He's yeah. thinks so little of her as a human. We know what happens to Myrtle Wilson at the end too, where she gets run over by the wealthy Daisy driving, you know, the whole moral rebuke of the novel is that the rich are careless people that smash things up and break things up and then retreat back into their world of privilege. And this moves us into this discussion of the characters. And, you know, Nick is the outsider character, but I do think he's essential in that role. He's kind of the reader's representative in the novel, the person who's not from money or part of money. He doesn't live in a big house. He lives next to the big houses. He does have a second cousin once removed. And my students understand his relationship to Daisy a lot better after I explain how all those rules work. And that he doesn't, he probably knows Tom better than he knows Daisy at that point because he went to Yale. And even at Yale, he didn't really like or know Tom that well. It's just these are the only people he knows in town at all. Right. And Nick is the outsider, kind of, he says the whole time he he reserves judgment. And on the surface of things, people approaching the novel with, a certain idea of what makes you a good person or a bad person are immediately going to judge Gatsby as a bad person. It's the old boyfriend who's going to make his money through illegal means who wants to come in and bust up a marriage. There's nothing admirable about that, but he says, let's reserve judgments till we get to late in the book, late in the story of Gatsby's life anyway, then decide whose side you're on. So I, I think thinking of Nick in that way is important. And then of course we have our other central characters. We have Daisy, Tom, Jordan, Jordan is a very important character, too, because she, in the pairings of the novel, she becomes kind of briefly the girlfriend of uh, Nick Carraway. And she introduces this marvelous theme, another theme of yes. of wastage about the, the image of the bad driver. Jordan is known for two things in the novel. There's a rumor that she yep. might have cheated at golf, and she's also known as a famously bad driver. And at one point, almost and, she, and she's incurably dishonest, right? And almost clips a workman at one point. And when Nick sort of says to her, "What are you doing? You can't be this reckless," she says, "I'm. I, I depend on the other person to get out of the way. Somebody who's laid back and observant like Nick. We tend to flatter ourselves." as being morally superior because we think more, we're probably more reflective, we're probably more self-critical. But there are a couple moments in the novel where Nick makes pretty dubious statements about himself, like I am the most incurably honest person I know. And we delude ourselves, I think, sometimes when we have this idea of, of we, we, we can criticize our actions and those around us much more reflectively than other people. So again, I come back to this idea that there's just a marvelous ambiguity in all of these characters. Mm. We also talk about Myrtle. There was a long tradition where she was kind of dismissed as being just a kind of shrewish wannabe. But there is something when you look at the whole history of how wealthy married men end up with working class mistresses, where those women get treated like commodity and used and thrown away and she's kind of a a verse of Gatsby right she's trying to recreate herself by building an illusion of what this man means to her and putting all her hopes in Tom as he puts all his hopes in Daisy and it doesn't work out for her and it doesn't work out for Gatsby and that's the great rebuke of the novel is that America is not a classless society that there are these borders But we also know that uh, there's a whole element of gangsters and crime and Bernie Madoff types in the novel, if you want to call it that. 
we're introduced to one of the most controversial characters in American literature, the Jewish gangster Wolfsheim, right. which uh, seems to perpetuate a lot of anti-Semitic cliches. We're talking long noses and heavily Yiddish accents, right down to the use of molars for human molars for cufflinks. But Wolfsheim is his own version of the American dream. It's not one that is looking to assimilate into the upper class. It's one that, like the bootleggers, was there strictly for the money. And also based on real life members of the Jewish arm of the mafia who had some of these habits and some of these affects. At the time the book was published, it was widely recognized that Wolfsheim was a version of a gangster named Arnold Rothstein, who has been eclipsed since by Al Capone in the legend. If you ever watch uh, Boardwalk Empire, you get a very early version of Arnold Rothstein, but fascinating figure, but at the same time was still alive when Gatsby came out. Died three years later in 1928 under circumstances we can imagine Wolfsheim dying under is getting shot. But Wolfsheim talks about the earlier murder of a famous gangster named Rosenthal. Right. Very famous crime, uh, eventually members of the New York police went to the electric chair for being part of this. So there is an emerging fascination in this novel with with crime and with uh, making money through crime. It does glamorize, I think, a little bit the gangster element. And it's one of the reasons that the novel is often read alongside a pair of later pulpier novels that have made a huge impression, one called Little Caesar, not the pizza, but, uh, you know, the inspiration for the Edward G. Robinson film, but also one that is iconic for us today, thanks to Al Pacino, which is the original Scarface. Another thing that's interesting about these other characters in the book is how many of them, he, he works with foils and counterfoils with doppelganger figures throughout. So we have Jordan is, is Daisy's paired with Jordan. And on the one hand, J- Jordan's primary characteristic is she's kind of selfish and she's dishonest. And at first, if you only know Daisy, if you don't know how the story ends, your first time through the novel, you read this her character very differently, I believe, than you do if you've read it before. Because she seems just a victim of the circumstances and we're really rooting for her in Gatsby. Coming back through it, you realize how much of Jordan's descriptions apply to Daisy as well. Uh, Tom Buchanan is incredibly, it's all about the body and physicality and strength and, and really sensuality and probably sexuality. And you see that reflected in Myrtle. So even as Myrtle reflects Gatsby, she reflects Tom Buchanan. Buchanan and Gatsby on the surface should be like each other. They're both trying to be the alpha dog and with the big houses. And over here, we got the polo ponies over here. We got the airplane the, over here. We have the, the pool. They're both on the right on the, the coast there, but this guy's in the, the good old um, uh, area. This guy's in the bad new area. And, and so they should be alike, but instead in most of the essential ways, Gatsby's actually more like Nick. He's from the Midwest. He's from more middle class, or in his case, working class people. Uh, it's a very important scene that they served in World War One and had met each other actually in the war. And it's remarkable that Gatsby remembers him. And Nick, of course, remembers the village, but not he just vaguely seems familiar to him. Uh, that scene isn't written about a lot and talked about a lot. And you might be more familiar with if there is a more substantive 
criticism on it than I know, but I think it's essential for establishing, despite all the things wrong with Gatsby, there is a central core there of regular person who's not utterly consumed by all this other stuff. Nick is our regular guy in the novel, despite maybe his own, again, subjectivity and issues, uh, is so distinct from all the other characters in the novel. But And that's how they relate. That's one of the ways Gatsby kind of gets to him, why he roots for him, because he's the only one that he understands. Yeah, He can't understand why Daisy right. hasn't just fled the house with the babe in arms. Uh, and he also is not respected by Tom because he's just a working guy who has to go to this stockbroking place and do his work next to men and eat, you know, drink black coffee while he's eating little pig sausages. And he, again, he doesn't live in a big house. He lives next to it, but he has these connections where he sees them all from this other perspective as well. Um, and I do, I agree with you that the, one of the few honest people I've ever known means that Nick is not questioning his own scrutiny and that maybe we should. On the other hand, it is important that before Nick lets himself get serious with Jordan, he has to make sure to grow back home understands why he moved away. So we have all these people having affairs left and right. Tom's not only the guy who assumes that everyone who can have a mistress does, but that no one would judge you or care if you have a mistress. So he tells this guy he knew vaguely in college is related to his wife. Yeah. Come meet my girlfriend without a second thought. Nick is weirded out by it. He doesn't use Myrtle's name hardly at all in that chapter. She's always Mrs. Wilson. Every other person goes by a first name but it's Mrs. Wilson, Mrs. Wilson, Mrs. Wilson, because he's, he's a little freaked out by the whole thing that it people just casually show off their affair. And again, this isn't 2025 friends of Epstein uh, having these weird parties. This is 19 early 1920s when this happens. So I'm about to lay my whole theory of American masculinity on you. Okay. In terms of the Gatsby versus Tom Buchanan difference. What's interesting to me is I don't think Gatsby is an alpha dog. There is a different type of masculinity. Tom is an alpha dog because he is protecting turf. And in one of the most famous scenes in Gatsby, he goes ballistic over this whole theory that colored people are taking over rich people's dominion. And it's making, it's making fun of a theory of eugenics that was popular at the time and, and embodied by a book called The Rise of the Colored Empires. Um, but it's a very defensive, the alpha dog thing is a very defensive type of aggression. What Gatsby exudes is what Obama had, which what we today call, and I'm not going to explain this term, I'll let the audience look it up on Urban Dictionary or something, but Gatsby's got what we call BDE, if you know what that means. It is a type of masculinity that, it, that is cool which is a very important phrase because in the Plaza Hotel scene in which it's building up to this whole confrontation over Gatsby's origins, right before they go there, Daisy says to Gatsby, you always look so cool. Now it's the hottest day of the year and everybody is sweating buckets, but he exudes a sort of reserve. And that's part of his appeal by being just a little bit drawn back. I mean, he throws these fabulous parties but he's not hitting on any of these beautiful women and he's kind of above it all and he's uh, unreachable. uh, And that's, that's part of the attraction to him. So I think when we talk about alpha males, one of the important things to recognize is alpha male is a performance of strength, 
but it's usually a very defensive posture uh, and it usually fails. But the type of masculinity that succeeds or at least writers tend to want to make succeed is that sort of element of cool. I think you're absolutely right. And that is one of the things that distinguishes Gatsby. And I, and I think you could, and I know this is kind of dated old criticism about the novel, but I don't think it's wrong. The whole notion that for Tom, everything does come down to the kind of level of physicality of controlling turf, controlling his woman. And he's all about control, right? And of course, the thing that gets Myrtle found out is a dog collar and leash. And he wants to show the horses where we'll put a bridle on him and control this massive, powerful animal. And of course, he basically, his biggest problem with Gatsby is it's Mr. Nobody from nowhere trying to come and make love to your wife. And if it had been you know, Vanderbilt from New York, let's talk about it, but not Mr. Nobody from nowhere. And Gatsby is all about the heart. You know, I am not real fond of the more recent Gatsby film. I don't think the casting, the casting Gatsby is probably one of the better parts of the movie. If you're really looking at someone from film the last 20 years, who would have been a great, great Gatsby, it would have been young Brad Pitt, who would perfectly have been the elegant young roughneck he's the right size the right look uh, and he would have perfectly carried off the need to fake being smarter and more educated than you really are and you have a guy who looks like a super rich well-dressed even in pink suits young brad pitt surrounded by beautiful young women of course he can have anyone he wants uh in probably plenty of the young men with the snap of his fingers but he's pining for Daisy. So he's got this love that's beyond the physical, whether it's platonic as, you know, he's referred to as a platonic conception of himself in the novel uh, as, you know, this idea of the Apollo notion of love as the old criticism had it, where it's all about a purity of love and it's poetry and wine and song rather than the carnal Dionysian side of it. But there's clearly that divide between, you know, this ironic divide, Tom has Daisy, She's not enough for him because he's about as deep as a shallow end of a children's waiting pool. Gatsby, on the other hand, has pined away for her when he's clearly could have, should have found some other woman equally or more deserving than Daisy and gone off and I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the most fascinating things to me about Gatsby's experience in 1917 is he first enters the Fay house there in Louisville, being an alpha dog, he gets in there and the novel describes about as graphically as you could in 1925 that he went in there to take. And it's this whole romance novel language that's based upon the chic Edith Maud Hull's novel, which was the best-selling novel of 1921 and 1922 in America. But the idea that the romantic heroes exude this uh, super masculinity But in fact, when Gatsby commits to Daisy, and there's a whole separate scene where they're walking down the street after they have consummated this relationship, where he incarnates his dream within her, that he almost reverts to an asexual type of character. We know they're having an affair this whole time, but Fitzgerald completely eludes all of that physical passion that we would expect in a novel of adultery and instead exactly as you're saying presents him as this apollonian type of uh almost fastidiously removed from human 
Courtland Chivalric yeah, instead, exactly. of, instead of sexual. Exactly. So it's, it's really fascinating. I, I mean, I'm sort of fascinated by Fitzgerald's own attitudes towards sexuality. He was really kind of a Puritan in a lot of ways. And he tended to depict, there's a very famous line from uh, the critic Leslie Fiedler that basically said he was, he, you know, he was always an undergraduate because all he did was ever write about kissing rather than coitus. And nobody writes kisses better in American literature than Fitzgerald. I'm just going to throw that out there. And, and for listeners who don't know the story, go to Winter Dreams yep. and read about uh, the first kiss between Dexter Green and Judy Jones, yep. and you'll see exactly what Kirk is talking so about. So there's this whole element where I think adult sexuality reflects for Fitzgerald the complications of maturity, but it's also a betrayal of the idealism of that pursuit if you want to put it that way. So right. there's a, just a lot of fascinating elements to it. So you asked earlier, is he just a creepy stalker or is there something more beautiful to it? And what for me, the difference is that Daisy's never in any danger with Gatsby and he's going to ultimately respect her wishes. Right. Uh, she could have shot him down at any point and he would have done what she wanted. And I would say uh, the joke I'll make with students, which is probably a bit offensive, but it's pretty funny. Is, is it true love? Is it stalking? If it's true love in this case, he would have done what she wanted. He would have deferred. Tom doesn't care what anyone wants, but himself. Yeah. And, and so I believe that we, we fall on the side of it's not to excuse him from his naivety and believing in, the false lights and illusions of not seeing, you know, Daisy as a real human being, but as this idealized princess who represents American success. Um, it's not to excuse him from any of that, but he, that he is ultimately on that side of the fence instead yeah. of the creepy stalker side of it. We need to talk about Gatsby's death, shot to death by Myrtle's husband, because Tom has put it out there that Gatsby was driving the car that uh, mows down Myrtle and, the question of why must Gatsby die in this novel is always an important one. I think that ultimately Nick doesn't quite put it this way, but he almost does after the party where Tom defeats Gatsby, not by being the alpha dog, not by being brutal, but reminding Daisy that once she had really loved him and they didn't even know that Gatsby was alive. So by simply representing the truth, and Gatsby can't deal with the truth. Yeah. Everything he's built his house upon is made up of illusion and romance and possibility, but not reality. And that's really what ends the affair. Mm -hmm. And so he talks about how, you know, Daisy had held on to dreams from another age, like Gatsby. I don't know how much Daisy did or not. To me, she, although she has, I believe, genuine romantic feelings for Gatsby. I don't think there's ever any intention to completely follow through and change her life because it's a risk and it might come back on her because yeah. yes, Gatsby is involved with bootleggers yeah. and yeah, he might get caught. So it's too risky, but he's a great tool to use against. And in Tom. fact, Fitzgerald, when the novel was not successful in 1925, attributed that lack of success to the fact that he didn't draw Daisy's investment in the relationship enough for female readers to really get into he thought that was the great failure of the novel was that he didn't he didn't explore daisy's 
psychology a little a little bit more and make it clear that she was kind of a, a Madame Bovary figure to him. There is definitely some Madame Bovary there, but it is important to remember when she shows up to Nick's house and he says, don't bring Tom. She says, who is Tom? Yeah. And then when she shows up, she's ready to have an affair with anyone. Sure. She says, are you in love with me or why did I have to come alone? Yeah. And Nick's like, no, 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 it's not me. It's this other guy. And in a second, he's going to tilt back and he's going to dislodge a clock. And it's just all connected to his need to repeat the past. Can't repeat the past. He cried incredulously. Why, of course, it's also one of the rare moments where that veil of cool falls and all of a sudden he's doing pratfalls and he's a kind of comic figure reduced to almost a sort of adolescent gawkiness in the presence of this love. So we had that killing of Gatsby because that dream cannot be sustained. Right. And then you have the aftermath where Nick and we have all these kind of uh, Christological symbolism of Nick is denied three times. No one will come to the funeral, get, you know, Daisy won't show up or respond. And so Gatsby is sacrificed for everyone else. The, the woman who kills Myrtle gets away with it with no repercussions other than we don't even know she has a bad night or two honestly you know, in the book last um, we see of her they're eating fried chicken together yep and the same night that she's uh, whereas and gatsby is pretty pathetic when he sits outside all night long yeah. i have to think for myself around 11 o'clock to midnight if i see them eating the chicken i'm losing my own cool and she, walking she might, away she might need him she so. might and he's gonna stand there tom sets gatsby up he's been having an affair with myrtle nothing bad happens to tom Wilson, who's, you know, big crime is, of course, killing Gatsby, is dead. Myrtle, who's had the affair with Tom, but that's all she's done wrong, is dead. And Gatsby, who loved Daisy and it's had an affair with her, is dead. He's, he's sacrificed for so that Tom and Daisy can sail on and, you know, keep things smooth. Um, and I think that's why I, I love the scene when Nick tells Jordan, she says, you know, well, it's all your fault. I thought you were a rather honest person, but I met another bad driver, didn't I? And of course, we know the expectation there is he's supposed to say, it's not you, it's me. Yeah. I'm working through some stuff. And he's just tired of playing the game. He says, I'm 30 years old. I'm five years too old to lie to myself and call it honor. And that's yeah. that's a crazy moment where he jumps up in the middle of this party and realizes it's his 30th birthday. That's so significant for Fitzgerald, who at this yeah. point was approaching his own 30th and and was aware of the need to mature in that sense. And finally, Nick doesn't want to touch, doesn't want to shake Tom's hand. And he does. And we have that thing where Nick says, you know, that fella threw gold dust in your eyes, just like he did daisies. And Nick says something, and I don't have it right here in the book, but something along the lines of, there was nothing I could say to that fact except the one unutterable fact that it wasn't true. Yeah. And I love to ask my students, why isn't it utterable? Why not tell Tom? So why well, do you think? I think that it would be wasted breath. There's always going to be an excuse uh, because ultimately they are the careless people and they have the ability to retreat and to let other people clean up their mess. So at the end of the day, it's, it's an indictment of the moral depravity of the rich that they think money can get them any kind of freedom. Money matters more than people do. Right, right. And ultimately, of course, Gatsby's dying wish is protect Daisy. And he says, he says he'll tell people that he was driving a car. And I, I think between it wouldn't do any good anyway. They might, have, they might fight for a few days and they may be over it. Um, and then 
again, it'd be going against Gatsby's wishes. I think that's why it's not utterable myself. It's, so it's interesting that we talk about a, a passage. It's unutterable because I think for most readers, Fitzgerald very rarely restrains from uttering. I mean, he utters a lot. And I know you're getting ready to talk about the concluding passage, which is one of the most famous in American literature, because it's this, this big, huge oratorical buildup to uh, a statement comparing Gatsby to the national idealism or the American dream, however you want to call it. But I think it's very important to note that Fitzgerald believed in uttering. I mean, so much of his work is based on the sometimes over the top rhetorical appeals. Um, and you look at moments in this novel that seem just to to take it a step too far, almost uh, the scene where Gatsby and Daisy kiss and he talks about this ladder to the stars and uh, drinking the incomparable milk of wonder and the pap of wonder. He's reaching throughout the book uh, and, you know, Babe Ruth was the strikeout king or was the home run oh, king okay. for a long time, but he had a whole lot of strikeouts too. Yeah. And I think if you reach like Fitzgerald did, there's going to be a few lines that miss, but Ultimately, why has the novel survived? I don't think it's just because it's a bittersweet romantic tragedy. I don't think it's just because it's about the American dream gone awry and showing what happens when we, it's all about consumerism and we define people's worth by what they own and what they can purchase. I think it's also, though, simply because of the lyrical power of the writing. I think yeah. stylistically, the fact you know, one of the things that stands out about the book is it's very short. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I would hazard a guess uh, right now without going back and really checking that of the first 15 novels you and I dreamed up and put on our list that it's the shortest one. Yeah, on the uh, list. I would agree completely. And that's part of the beauty of it is it doesn't need to be any longer. That's exactly right. And, you know, the opening line to the the third chapter, and it's got one of his little subtle references to Eliot that he throws in throughout the book. Some of them not so subtle, like the sign of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, which was referencing the wasteland of Dr. T.S. Eliot. But right. here, you know, the opening of chapter three, there was music from my neighbor's house through the summer nights in his blue gardens. Men and girls came and went like moths among the whisperings and the champagne and the stars. The reason the novel is so beloved and works so well is not just the plot. Anyone can come up with a pretty interesting plot. It's, it's the execution. It's the craftsmanship. It's the beauty of that lyrical prose. And again, it does occasionally miss. There, there's no doubt about it that when Fitzgerald's aiming so high, he does occasionally, again, overshoot the mark. But, but there's a beauty to the writing throughout the novel, including, of course, that famous last Oaks passage you were referring against to. the current where we are building up to this idea that Gatsby is a perfect exemplum of the romantic who sees in the world, the realm of possibilities. And he makes it a very American thing with the image of us in the boat moving forward, but being washed back in by our nostalgia. So we're essentially stuck in the current. You mentioned the beauty of it. And one of the things that I think is important to recognize is that um, there's often a criticism of what we today call the Gatsby industry. I'm actually going to go out to Las Vegas in about a month and attend um, 
these gat one of these Gatsby parties that these casinos throw because I'm fascinated by the whole phenomenon of Gatsby parties. They get criticized all the time for perpetuating the sort of needless consumerism that the book is critiquing. But let's face it, nobody's going to throw a party where we renounce consumerism. That's 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 for the classroom. That's for the, the events like this. But um, you know, part of the I think it's a little too easy to dismiss all of that as consumerist indulgent. What people are seeking in a Gatsby party is again that sort of aesthetic lift that comes with participating in something of beauty. Uh, and that could be a meal. It could be the connoisseurship that comes with a certain type of wine. It could be clothes. Uh, you know, the first thing they said when Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones died was that his one indulgence was not women or drugs, but bespoke suits. He spent you know, that's what, that was where he found the beauty. And so I think a lot of us, when we go to these Gatsby events, that's what we're looking for is the uh, opportunity to dress up and the opportunity to pretend that we are aesthetes, you know, that we do pursue a life of, of refinement and beauty. And we're not all eating Whoppers on the way home. So let me ask you, as we start winding down, I think we have maybe a couple questions before we ask ourselves, is it a you know truly great American novel? And probably by now the listener knows how we're going to fall on that question. Uh, on Twitter, there's a online crime magazine that is always sending out small uh, journal articles that people can, can see. And a couple of times they've sent out one referencing The Great Gatsby as a crime novel. Do you accept that characterization of it? I think it's close to it. It has it has a lot of the elements of of mystery to it. You know, we have murder, we have the bootlegging. I think Gatsby, if anything, anticipates. This is going to sound weird after we just extolled the beauty of the language, but it anticipates the the more hard boiled turned. Not in terms of style, but in terms of the the disappointment in the system that you see in noir and hard-boiled literature, the world where the real criminals are the rich. There are definitely elements that are concurrent with crime fiction. Uh, I think calling it a crime novel, if there's really a, a connection to what crime fiction becomes, it's really more in the hermeneutic aspect or the interpretive aspect where, where we are looking for answers to questions that in the end don't get answered or that the answers really don't add up to a satisfactory conclusion. So it's not a crime novel in the sense that Sanctuary, Faulkner's Sanctuary, or Hemingway's to have and have not are. And, and ultimately, it's a matter of focus as well. How right. significant is the crime to the overall arc? Is, is crime being on the wrong side of law, the, whatever's happening in society to perpetuate crime, is that the focus? Or is the crime simply something which occurs in the novel that are, again, as I referred to it, bittersweet tragedy is, is worked around. And I think, you know, we don't really get a whole lot of his life as a front man for the bootleggers. We don't really get much of his, we get one brief scene and one brief phone conversation with Wolfsheim. I think ultimately it's definitely going to have some connections to the burgeoning rise of detective and crime, American yeah. style detective literature and crime literature which is flourishing in Black Mask magazine starting just before this time. Right. So 
Dashiell Hammett's career very much kind of mimics Fitzgerald's terms when he breaks in with short fiction. A lot of crime writers like Ross McDonald later basically claimed that they were rewriting the Garrett Gatsby over and over in the critique of the critique of wealth. So that that influence is there. And this is a great segue. A few years ago, there's a a pretty well-made British television. It's a prequel series, but most would argue the prequel series is better than the original series. So the prequel series is called Endeavor. And it's a British television show about the young Inspector Morse. They did an episode that's entirely about the Great Gatsby, but they zig a few places when you think they're going to zag. So by departing from Gatsby in places, you think you've got it solved once you identify its source. And then, of course, it moves in other directions. Right. But that makes us think of the novel adaptations to film. So the two most famous ones are the one, is it 1974? 74 with Robert Redford. Redford. And um, with, and Daisy is played by Mia Farrow. Uh, Tom Buchanan played by Bruce Dern, a, a guy who shot John Wayne in the back. And the in the movie The Cowboys is a unnecessary digression. Then, of course, more recently filmed by the uh, Boz Lerman with um, Tobey Maguire as Nick and Sam Watterson played Nick in the earlier version. Tobey Maguire as Nick, Leonardo DiCaprio as as Gatsby and Carrie Mulligan as uh, Daisy. And there's an early one, right? In the thirties. Well, there's actually, there's one from the twenties that no longer exists where just to give you an idea of how fashions have changed. Gatsby has a mustache and Daisy is brunette, which is something that changes uh, as, as we move forward. And there's also what we call the gangster Gatsby, which is came out in 1949, which is, I think demonstrates what goes wrong when you try to make the novel uh, a, a crime novel. Um, but I think all of those film versions, you mentioned you don't like the Baz Luhrmann. I do think it's a little like it's a, a little over the top, a little frenetic, maybe a little too uh, amped up in terms of technique. But I also find the Redford one just dreadfully boring. I felt like they, they, and part of that is because all the money that for that production was off screen and the cocaine and the, you know, the, the costuming, the luxuries. But I think, you know, there are versions of Gatsby that are, um, they, they, it often gets adapted in things like uh, ballet or in uh, avant-garde uh, opera, avant-garde theater. And that's maybe where the more successful adaptations are because you are trying to find corollaries for expressing Fitzgerald's style. In the film version, so much, you, you really only have two options. You can either do voiceovers for the famous passages or you can have, uh, or you can delete them completely. And I'm not a big fan of voiceovers. So I, I've, tend to feel like that those get layered on top and are superfluous. Well, and you know, it seems the casting is always an issue. So yeah. Gatsby and Nick Carraway and Tom are reasonably good in the first one, but I do not think Mia Farrow is at all convincing as Daisy. No. She's supposed to have no. this unbelievable charm that makes everyone fall for her. And- it seems very screechy. Also, this, the cinematography is very 70s. You know, there's a lot of those sort of flash forward kind of zoom ins on emotional reactions and starting off a scene at extreme close up and then yanking back. Yeah. There are scenes that the 
director in his second one, the Lerman film, simply gets wrong. Like his rendering of the second chapter is a champagne orgy among just four people. Uh, this is the scene entirely. Tobey Maguire is about as interesting as a handful of Elmer's glue. Again, DiCaprio is good. I think the, the woman in that one's probably a better Daisy. Yeah, she's probably the best, to be honest. Again, there are scenes he kind of adds to the novel. Puts a whole frame around it where Nick is in a mental institution, which kind of, yeah, kind of defeats the purpose of the story. But I think it boils down to, for all of these adaptations and desires to retell the story in different media, it, it is a novel at the end of the day. And it, and it works best as a novel. So let's talk about our criteria then uh, in terms of is it, is it one? Obviously, we've said it is American in terms of its theme. You mentioned the heft, the scope, the depth. And I think that this is, as you, as you say, this is our example of one that doesn't need to be a doorstop to be absolutely perfect. But that worked against it for a long time. And a lot of people didn't think it was sufficiently broad. I think that's something that I really like about novels from this time period in that there are not that many of them that stretch on and on just for the purpose of stretching on and on. Yeah. If you look at The Sun Also Rises, you look at The Great Gatsby, even look at some more obscure novels, like Miss Lonely Hearts by mm -hmm. Nathaniel West and so on. These books are all short and tight. There's no wasted motion, no wasted words, no wasted scenes. And I think that's something that I don't know when that completely goes out the door. We have giant novels and short novels throughout the time period but i i think sometime in the first part of the new millennium we get back to that notion that really important novels have to be really long again and you it's think of jonathan franzen and it's a desire for the epic donna tart is another example of that with a goldfinch a book that could have profitably been cut down by at least half and i think people have lost the idea of really what it is we're looking for in these books sometimes yeah. question of question of durability is an, an interesting one because what we one thing we haven't talked about is that this book was not a big success in 1925. It sold less than half of, or a little more than half, excuse me, of what his most famous novel, uh, This Side of Paradise, sold, um, and was virtually it, it was never really forgotten. But it did not have any kind of cultural footprint at Fitzgerald's death, except for a few handfuls of friends and admirers who recognized the achievement. However, within five years of his death, the novel was really rediscovered and canonized and what we call the Fitzgerald revival had kicked into gear. The question of why I think has a lot to do with style and the fact that it's an eminently teachable book in terms of, um, it's, almost a, it's almost a handbook on the things that we teach in a literature classroom, like symbolism and metaphor and simile and all of those types of devices, narrative techniques. It's got just about every narrative technique under the sun in it. I would argue it's the most taught novel in the United States. Yeah. Um, and possibly uh, when you get into the worldwide picture, Hemingway is still so incredibly popular overseas that it's probably between the two of them. Uh, but I don't think you could find any book that's been taught more between college and high school than yeah. The Great Gatsby. Even yeah. even Their Eyes Are Watching God, which has become a strong closer, probably is a, is at best second to The Great Gatsby. It's not not quite there yet. Now, no one can argue that it's about American themes. That's been the 
the primary thing we've talked about is how it deals with what's happens to our country and its notions of, of self-creation of being self-made people and up by your bootstraps and the ability to pursue happiness. What happens when we lose focus of what that's supposed to mean? And it's all about what you own, where you came from, what you can buy. So it clearly is all about the American experiment, even to this day. Yeah. Well, uh, where do you stand on this next one? I think we've addressed it pretty well, but would we call it a significant artistic accomplishment? Oh yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, this is a novel that, and and he knew it when he was writing it, sat down and basically uh, planned it out. Now, w- one of the interesting things about the novel is that if the if he had not had Maxwell Perkins as the editor, it probably would have been less successful in terms of its artistic accomplishment because the first draft, which is available now under the title of uh, Trimalchio, which was one of his awful (laughs) original titles, it doesn't quite have, it doesn't build the mystique about Gatsby in the way that, uh, way that the published version does. So when Fitzgerald turned it in in late 1924, Maxwell Perkins came back and said, you know, this is, this is great. But there needs to be a little bit more kind of fairy dust about Gatsby sprinkled throughout that justifies the mystery around him. And so Fitzgerald went in and rearranged some things and I think creates a a lot more suspense and also draws from a couple more contemporary scandals that amps up the theme of gossip and scandal in the novel. So it, it was not a book that took long to write but it was not a book that was written in, in a first go either and needed some significant collaboration for it to achieve what it did. But I think by any measure, when we talk about what is an aesthetic accomplishment, the use of language and the appeal to emotion, which was not favored upon in this time. A lot of these novels were much more invested in irony and distancing but that was Fitzgerald's appeal was to was to emotion and so I think it it, it's almost a blueprint Uh, you can find all kinds of novels today that claim they are homages to the great Gatsby because all serious writers want to try to achieve something like this it's a bejeweled masterpiece it's not bedazzled which is kind of cheap and gaudy but it is it is taking language and creating beautiful jewelry out of it I couldn't agree more. And by way of a counterpoint, I would put forward my nomination for cannon fodder. And in this case, a cannon buster. <laughs> so we always end every episode. Is it the, uh, you know, should something be added to the cannon or is there something from the cannon that maybe should be demoted to a less worthy wrong? We're not saying burn it or ban it or get rid of the library copies of it. We're saying maybe it's not as worthy of inclusion at the upper tier as it often is. And so my nomination is an American tragedy by Theodore Dreiser is published eight months later, the same year as a great Gatsby. And it tells the story of a working class man named Clyde who flees Kansas city ahead of uh, significant legal problems. He's dodging responsibilities, dodging, uh, again, taking punishment for his bad choices, moves to Chicago where he reunites with the wealthy uncle and is able to start moving as he starts working for him a bit and working in that relationship, start moving in those circles of the wealthy. 
So on the one hand, he starts a relationship with a poor girl named Roberta. And on the other hand, with a wealthy and beautiful young woman, Sandra Finchley. So eventually, Roberta gets pregnant and threatens to ruin his relationship with Sandra, whom he now plans to marry. From here, as they say, bad decisions are made and things get worse. Thematically, the book is interesting. If it's, uh, it is textbook literary naturalism falling right in the mode of turn of century writers like Emil Zola and Frank Norris. And it's dark take on the American dream is a photo negative. There's that term again of the great yeah. Gatsby. Yeah. But on the other hand, it is bloated. It runs over 800 pages. There's very little poetry or lyricism or any jewels in the novel. It is riddled with exposition. It tells you repeatedly what you should think about it. One could argue that the film adaptation with Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor, A Place in the Sun, is the greater artistic accomplishment. Maybe that's not fair since it is based on this novel. But this gets my vote for the Cannon Buster. It's a very interesting work because it was once considered a great American novel. And um, I think because Dreiser's reputation has so far fallen that it doesn't get read enough anymore. But you're exactly right that it it kind of commits every obvious sin that Fitzgerald didn't do. It goes on way too long. And the style, it, you mentioned it is a naturalist work. Uh, the style of naturalism just does not convey the dreamlike quality that Fitzgerald manages to capture. So that's, you know, the, it's, it's unfortunate because it's a historically interesting novel. It's based on a, on a true crime. It's a true crime novel, if you want to talk, call it that. But Dreiser is just not a, to me anyway, in terms of style, he doesn't, he, he's not an idealist. Uh, and he doesn't really convey any sort of pining or any any kind of desire whatsoever. Um, you just it's like a monkey slapping a typewriter to me. You know, is something tragic if you don't care anything about the characters? Yeah, that's a great point. You, Hamlet's excellent. a tragedy partly because you come to be so interested in Hamlet, the right. character. Um, even in King Lear, even if. Old Lear is not someone we we warm to. Many of the other characters are people we take we take on, and there's really no one in this book other than you feel some sympathy, I think, for Roberta, but uh, and maybe a little for Sandra even, but not for Clyde certainly ever. Uh, now, Kirk, uh, why don't you tell our listeners what our next book will be? So our next book we're going to look at is uh, a recent one, comparatively speaking, comes from 1987. It is often voted the most significant novel of the past 40 years, and it is beloved by Toni Morrison, and uh, a novel that has uh, a lot of literary controversy surrounding it, but a novel that is also uh, historically uh, significant, uh, is based on a true story, but has a lot of, uh, raises a lot of questions about aesthetic technique as well. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it because I've gotten into uh, writing about Toni Morrison uh, recently and uh, am very eager to, uh, to tackle the issues in it. Sounds great. And I'm looking, really looking forward to talking about that one with you. Thank you for listening to the Great American Novel Podcast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are so inclined, please leave a review. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, you may enjoy others such as Master to 40, which we mentioned in the podcast with Kirk and Robert Trogdon, focusing on the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald and reading McCarthy with myself and various guests about the works of Cormac McCarthy. And you can always email us at greatamericannovelpodcast at gmail.com. We thank you for listening and we look forward to talking to you in about three weeks. Thank you.